Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And this week is our 150th episode. Woo! Yay! <laughs> Happy anniversary to us. <laughs> that's that's three years. Wow. Yeah, that's three years worth, basically. That's awesome. So if, if you're just learning about the Business of Authority, you've got a lot of listening to do, mister. <laughs> or madam. Or madam. Um, okay, so... Uh, for this episode, we put the word out to the audience that we wanted to uh, get your questions and play them on the show, answer them in real time. And we we actually like this idea a lot. And as we're going into our next 50 episodes, want to make it a regular segment on the show. So if you want to, can, you know, folks, if, if your question didn't get answered or if you have new questions, feel free to send them in to us at our email addresses you can find on the uh, show notes for the episode you can find us and it's pretty easy to find your email addresses yeah pretty easy let's just plan on making that a regular thing yeah i'd like to hear your feedback what you think about this this concept yep cool all right so without further ado we've got a bunch of questions to go through i uh, i think we'll probably get through hopefully we'll get through five <laughs> we'll see <laughs> we'll see here all right our first question is from andrea moxham Hey, Jonathan, this is Andrea Moxham from Horseshoe & Co. in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. And my question is, what kind of pricing model would you recommend to a consulting agency that's traditionally relied upon the recurring revenue from monthly retainers? Ah, uh, this is a good one. Okay, <laughs> so I, I'm going dr- to, I'm going to, I can't help it, I have to jump in. Um, Shocker. Well, do you have a... Do it's you on, have a no, no, it, it's on pricing. I think you should. Okay. I okay. absolutely think you should jump in. All right. Um, so the, the question here is retainer. What does she mean by retainer? And most people, when they say retainer, what that is, it's sort of the, the lawyer style retainer where it's prepayment for a block of hours. And then when you run out of hours, they, they give you a new prepayment for another block of hours. And that's better than hourly billing, but it doesn't change the dynamics it just moves the it moves the trust fracture. So the client is paying for some block of hours. They're going to expect a certain amount of things to get done. So you still have to give timesheets. And if enough stuff doesn't get done, they're going to start getting annoyed. So just like hourly billing against an estimate, it pushes the people onto opposite sides of the table. And it, it can work. It sounds like she's been doing it for a while. It can work as long as you're getting enough stuff done to justify the price in the client's mind. The client is not going to be satisfied with like, oh, well, they put the hours in and didn't get anything done that I wanted. (laughs) If it's been working for you, it's because you've managed to get done what they want to get done. The ironic thing about this is you could have just left the hours out of it and then not been on the hook to execute all the hours that you promised that you would execute and then just get the thing done. Bingo. That, I mean, that's, it was funny when you first started, because that's what I, where I was thinking she was starting from is like a lot of times, like PR firms, for example, they'll have a retainer, but it's, it's not ours in terms of how they present it to the client. But interestingly, they figure it out behind the scenes based on hours. You know, I'm going to take this right. person at this rate and put this together. But for the client, it's deliverables. It's mm-hmm. tied to deliverables. Right. So I like to go a step beyond deliverables to outcomes or results, business mm-hmm. results. So, okay, so now Newton, I'm going to pivot a little bit here. So if if that's what you're doing, if you're selling blocks of hours in advance, you you might as well just get rid of the hours piece and figure out what it is that they want and deliver that for the same price. And you'll find that if you can do it more efficiently uh, without cutting corners, you can make more money, increase your profits by working fewer hours and still delivering the results that they want. And that's usually the way that I would do a project, but we're talking about recurring retainer here. So that's interesting. So for a recurring model, I, I like to go with an advisory approach. So an advisory retainer where you're not doing execution, you are making yourself available uh, at the drop of a hat to answer questions. Uh, usually, the, usually the scenario is client has a big project that they're undertaking. It's sort of a bet the business thing, or they're spending a ton of money on it, and they're feeling exposed to a lot of risk. And they want someone who's an expert at the thing, or somehow perceived as an expert, that can kind of minimize the risk of the project by being a phone call away at all times. 
So it's kind of like a hotline to your brain. It's kind of like being on call, but you're not on call the way a fireman would be on call where you have to run in and do a bunch of stuff that's very hard and perhaps risky. You're really just, it's like overseeing a project or not managing a project, but you mm-hmm. know, a project is going on and they're managing it. The client is managing their people or they're managing an outside agency. They've got their own project managers and account, you know, maybe they have an agency that has account management, but you're there to make sure that nobody blows their foot off or to at least decrease the risk of blowing their foot off. So uh, with me, this was always like mobile software consulting. So when, when mobile is still new, uh, you know, 2010, 11, 12, around there, people would hire me because they had a bunch of web developers, but nobody knew how to to make a website or web application work well on mobile. So they would have me kind of oversee the first I'd, upfront, I would kind of create a blueprint or some kind of architecture or, or a plan. And then they would start executing it. And I would be, you know, babysitting is the wrong word, but I would I would be available to make sure that no one went into a ditch. So it was like an insurance policy. They'd pay me on a monthly basis to make sure that, or to increase the odds of success first time through. So it'd be, you know, again, this is for high risk projects that have uh, a lot of uncertainty and are really important to the business. They're spending a lot of money. And for whatever reason, they feel like they need to get it right the first time. No mistakes. I like to think of that as you're consulting to the project. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's because you're not executing, you're not doing the steps, but and you're high enough or far enough removed from the day to day that you can see things that the people who are in it cannot. Mm-hmm. And the way a lot of people end up working their way into this idea of, of offering advisory retainers would be, this is not always, but this is one way that a lot of people do it, is that they, they, you know, they start off doing this sort of hands work, execution, implementation, and they start to get good at it and they start to recognize that really the most valuable thing they do and probably the most fun thing they do is the stuff at the beginning where they come up with a strategy or design or plan or an architecture or some kind of blueprint, this big picture strategic work. That's fun and they feel like they're using the best part of their brain and then the execution feels like a slog. So they start to break off that initial strategy thing as an independent offering. And at the end of that, the client will get some kind of a deliverable that is going to decrease their uncertainty or increase their certainty. So they're going to decrease their risk of the upcoming project. And But that's a discrete deliverable. And like, okay, here you go. We're done here. And then the client will say, okay, but can you implement it for us? And you can start saying no to this. You know, let's say you say yes. You say, yeah, I can, but I'm going to be the most expensive. Like, the hard part's out of the way. You could get any garden variety web developer or whatever to execute this for you. Why don't you just do that? So now there's a fork in the road for the client. They can either pay you a lot to execute it, which you don't really want to do anyway because you're bored of mm-hmm. that. Or they can go out and find someone uh, to do it or they have internal employees or they can hire for it. And then you can do this oversight thing. So you could say, well, you know, I could do this for you, but it's going to be you know three times more than if you get someone yourself. Uh, But if you want me to hang around and oversee the project to kind of shepherd it to success, then I can, you know, I can do that for you for X dollars per month. And maybe that looks like a weekly meeting, uh, occasional phone calls. Maybe it looks like reviewing pull requests if it's a technical, you know, software thing. It's different for everybody, but you're not, you're not doing any of the execution. It's like a, it's like an architect saying, here are your blueprints. And then the client paying them to show up weekly to the job site and make sure that the house is going up the, to plan. You know, it's like things are going the way they should. And th- what this does is it gives the client an expert who's in their corner that understands when, I mean, can see things that are going wrong or they can call BS on things that the implementers are saying like, oh, no, that's way harder. And it's like, well, no, why don't you just do it like this? Oh, yeah, okay, fine, if you want us to do it like that. So it's, it's kind of like... <laughs> It's kind of like, yeah, it's just like an architect walking around a job site and saying like, you not, not micromanaging it, but just watching out for someone who's about to step on a landmine. Yeah, I just want to point out that with each of these different variations, there's a skill set that goes with that. And so uh, you might be great and let's use, you know, stick with the coding example, right? You might be great at coding and you might love it to death. Um, you might not be 
as great at supervising it. So you may have to learn this process, right? And you learn some different skills on how to deal with uh, the people that are on a a project where there's multiple levels of skill and commitment and there's internal politics, you know, there's those kinds of things. So part of, I think part of this continuum is you also decide where you want to spend your time, where your skill sets are best used. Like I can think of a lot of people, and one of them is on this podcast, um, Jonathan, who would be great in this advisory role where you're you're with whoever is responsible for this project inside the firm. And you can easily point out what's going wrong without having to step in. Somebody else might be tempted to step in a lot more often. And so you just have to find that balance between how you operate, what you're really good at, and how you set up the structure with your client. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And it does mean exercising some new muscles, like being more consultative. And to your point, especially when you're first doing this, you have to exercise a lot of restraint to not jump in and try and put out Mm -hmm. the fire. If you do that, it's a very slippery slope and and probably you won't be getting paid enough to do that. It's a cliff. It's a cliff. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a cliff. And yeah. once you fall, you can't get back up. Right. And for me, the the line in the sand was always I it was been bold print on the uh, the agreement that I will not offer any shipping code. Sometimes I would write code to to, you know, proof a concept or here's how you do it, gang, or uh, yes, this is actually feasible. Uh, it's going to work like this and these browsers are not in that one, but you don't care about that one. So, okay, here's what you do. But the, the line in the sand was I wouldn't author shipping code because if I did, then I had to log into the bug tracker and that was not happening. So, you know, that's a very specific example for software developers, but maybe uh, Andrea, maybe uh, if you are talking about the kind of bucket of hours lawyer retainer, maybe think about stripping off a a kind of initial engagement, some kind of a blueprint, you know, architect, if we use the building model, some kind of a blueprint thing that you sell independently. And the outcome of that thing is that the client has a map. So they've got a, um, you know, to the extent that you can map it out, you say like, here's, here's the situation. Here's where we are. Here's where we want to go. This is where it gets fuzzy. Here are some obvious landmines. uh, And, you know, now a a more junior person can run with this if you want to get a junior person to do that and then they can say well how about if we keep you on to kind of you know make sure that we don't do anything crazy and you can say sure it'll be ten thousand dollars a month which is less than they would probably way less than they would have to pay you whatever the number is it would be Mm -hmm. a lot less than they would have to pay you to do the work do the execution but your involvement instead of being 40 hours a week could probably be like two hours a week you know for Mm -hmm. half the money so it's extremely profitable. I think the other thing with retainers is you really want to look at it from the viewpoint of the client. And one of the first retainers I was ever involved in, I didn't negotiate it, but I was on the team for it uh, early in my career was with a very large organization that we hadn't worked with before. And we were starting to get to know them. And there was this one particular area that we were really, really good at. And the lead on the, on the account came up with this idea, which wasn't done very often then in that world of doing a retainer. But his idea was, let's give them the most we possibly can. So they, he came up with a number. I don't remember how they got the number, but they came up with a number. And then he said, let's basically tell them that if it's in this area, whatever comes up, we'll deal with. And I remember because we all gasped and went, what if, what if there's not enough hours? What if we can't get that? He said, the whole point is we want this client to see all that we can offer them. And we're going to do it for three months. It's, you know, it's not forever. It's for three months. And then we see how it works and we renegotiate. Best thing ever. Not only did that client re-up, I I think after a couple of years, that retainer was something like 10 times what it had been in the beginning. Yeah. I I love that. I love that. Pick a price and reverse engineer the scope. And like whoever that person was, it was super, that was great. Very long range thinking. It's like, look, this is, it's just three months. It's not going to kill us. Uh, And we can renegotiate it at the end. So just do it. It's, it's what we ask our clients to do all the time when we're billing by the hour. It's like, oh, we're going to pay all these hours, but am I going to get anything that I need? Mm-hmm. So love yeah. that story. 
Yeah. And when you're in a big firm like that, it's hard to do that. In fact, that person became my business partner when I started <laughs> my first business. Nice. I thought, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that, I, I think we've beaten that question to death. <laughs> I think we have. Thank you, Andrea. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. Let's play the next question. Uh, this one is from Katie Atherholt. I think that's how you say it. How do you think international business or economics can and should impact pricing? I've seen some agencies price fixed cost products lower for certain countries in order to be more accessible, like courses and books, for example. Mm. Uh, interesting. Okay, so if we if we talk about, do, uh, well, do I want to draw a distinction? I guess it doesn't, it does kind of matter. I think there's a distinction between services and pure products. So let's talk about services first. And my feeling is this, uh, services are very high cost of delivery. Uh, even if it's advisory, it's very, it's very intensive. Um, you have to have a lot of focus on the client. It's very high touch, even if it's advisory. So to me, that is just a question that you have to answer for yourself. Like, do you want mm -hmm. to target clients with the highest buying power? I mean, that's really the question. Like if you want to maximize your prices that you can charge, a great thing to do is target people that have more buying power because they value money in, in any individual dollar less than someone who has less money. Mm -hmm. $10 isn't worth the same thing to everyone. Like even to your, you think back to yourself, like if, if I was in college and I saw a $10 bill on the side of the road, I'd crash my car into a pole to jump out and get it. <laughs> but if I saw one on the ground now, I'd be like, that's eh, probably a trick or something and just leave it there. So the, the value of, of any certain amount of money is going to be different and it depends. And, and the value is based on how much of those dollars you have, or another way to look at it is how hard it would be for you to replace those dollars. So if you want to command the maximum prices or fees or whatever you want to call it, you would want to target people that have the most buying power. If for some reason you feel a, whatever, a calling to help people who are, don't, don't have a lot of buying power, let's put it like that, then that's up to you. Uh, you're not going to be able to charge as much. And the, and, and the work is probably not going to be any smaller. It's not going to be any less effort. Right. So you need, so what I would do and what I do do is to support people who have very low buying power and are looking for a way to increase their income so that they have more buying power in the future. I offer tons and tons and tons of stuff for free. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not just bland content marketing or like keyword stuffed SEO BS. It's like actually helpful. Well, we're answering questions for free right now. So that's, I mean, this is an example of like putting out tons of free stuff to help people who can't afford the, the stuff that's expensive for us to produce. Like a one-on-one -on -one private coaching is the most intense thing I offer. And it's really expensive and I can't lower the price and keep doing it. So I offer, I package up the expertise that I gain from those engagements and share it with people for free at scale as much as I possibly can. So I guess that allows me to sleep at night while still charging lots of money to people who have more buying power. Well, it seems to me that uh, what we're really talking about here is is values, right? Is if if you've got a value system that says, I need to be able to serve these people, you can do exactly what you just said, Jonathan. That's what I do as well, which is we've got lots of free options. We have some low cost options. Um, but if your value system says, I want to make some of this available, you can absolutely look at different economic models to do that. And I just saw this in the last week. Um, there's a speaker consultant type. I'm probably going to butcher his name. I think it's Jurgen Apollo. And if you've seen his stuff, but I just happened to look at his speaking site and he has it priced by, by, uh, economic area. And he has some flat pricing. And we're talking about speaking, which is clearly a service, high touch, uh, up until now, you know, a cost of travel and delivery. And the way I was reading it is he included the delivery cost and then he ratcheted the price down depending on uh, the economic viability of the area that country was in. Mm -hmm. That's the first time I've actually seen that with with speaker fees. So, but I just feel like it's really about your values. There is no right or wrong answer. You have to decide for yourself. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think, and and I totally agree that it's a values thing. And I, I picture, I see this as a long game, a very long game. And if you look at uh, my product ladder, for example, there's a massive amount of free stuff. And the idea is that for folks that are, say, you know, maybe they're just brand new. Maybe they're right out of college. They have tons of debt. You know, $5 makes a big difference to them. It gives them a way to level up, maybe have a couple of wins, maybe have like a really profitable value price proposal go through. And then I, like if they're successful, that's great. And they'll maybe buy the next thing on the ladder because now they've got more buying power. So you want to be very focused about your target audience, but but you can dial it up and down based on what stage of the journey they're in. And that could be, you know, because of their socioeconomic background, or it could be that they're just really young and they're they have just business is brand new. But if you can work with them, if you present package your expertise in a way that they can afford, either free or, you know, an inexpensive ebook or something like that, and it works, then they're going to make more money. Yeah. <laughs> and then they yeah. can come back and, and get more and more and trust you more and, and, and get quicker results because they're like, wow, this definitely works. I'm just going to do what he says the next time instead of fiddling around with it for six months. I think Rochelle nailed it. I think you nailed it though with, you know, it's about values. Like how do you want to serve your audience? It really is. And the, and the other thing is that you want to make sure that you're not giving away so much that you can't stay with the mission. Uh, I've encountered a lot of people like this where, you know, they've priced it based on what they think they need to live at a minimal basis. And then they're giving away things that have huge value to people who could actually afford them. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, you just have to find that right balance for yourself, but you have to be able to fund the mission on some level. I like your idea, Jonathan, and it, and it comes back to this is packaging your expertise in ways that people at all different income levels can benefit from. Exactly. Yep. Cool. Great question. Thanks, Katie. Yeah. She actually sent in a second one, so let's do that one next, since it, we're going in alphabetical order. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. How should small businesses consider reorienting their offerings within the current economic situation? Is now the time to be moving toward industries that are profitable, like online education or telemedicine, or focusing on industries with high value problems to solve and finding the clients with money to spend on solutions. Oh, another good one. Yeah. <laughs> so can we say yes? <laughs> <laughs> so my feeling on this is that it all comes back to like my core philosophy, which is help people you like get what they want. So I am not a fan even though this does work, you know, can work, I should say, it doesn't always work. I am not a fan of chasing opportunity. Mm -hmm. I, I like to, I like the opportunity to come to me. And when opportunity comes, then I'm ready for it. But I don't like chasing opportunity. I feel like you're always two steps behind. You want to skate to where the puck's going to be. And the easiest way to do that is to decide who you want to help and then figure out how to help them in a way that will allow you to continue funding your mission. So who do you want to help? That could be defined by a particular vertical. It could be a psychographic. It could be a demographic. Whatever niche you want to help, however you define that target market, is fine. And then when times like these happens, it seems, maybe I'm just old, but it seems like there's always times like these they seem to keep getting worse, but we all, it's like, oh, these hard economic times. Like you hear people saying that every three years, uh, it, when something like that happens, uh, granted, this is a historic shift, but you know, COVID-19 and, and whatnot. But in that case, what happens is the people you want to serve want something different, almost not, not necessarily, but may want something different. So you just go to them and say, how can I help today? And if there's some way that you can help today, even if it's different than how you helped yesterday, then do that. But I, I'm just not personally a fan of being like, oh, okay, like now's a great time to jump away from airlines and into, you know, online telecommunication or something. Yeah, it's you've got to, there's heart and head in this. Right. And because the heart is, who do you want to help? Who do you want to really help succeed? Who do you want to transform? And, you know, what's that particular transformation that you make in a way nobody else does? Like, where's your power? 
with this. And then there is the what's happening with that audience. So let's say that your passion audience are chefs of high-end restaurants. Well, guess what? Those guys do not have any budget right now. They probably don't even have a restaurant anymore. So if that's your passion project, you then have to look and say, what's changing in the industry? What's my particular area of expertise? If it's the physical design of restaurants, you probably need to pivot right? Unless you've got something else to do in the interim, you probably have to pivot. So it's the, it's both. It's looking at where your dream audience is headed, applying your strategic skills to see how that dovetails with what you do. But I 100% agree with Jonathan, you've got to follow um, the people that you like, the people that you really care about. Because if you don't care about them, it, there's, there's no heart in the business. And I'm going to argue that it's really, hard to succeed if you don't care about your clients i see it all the time where someone's like uh i don't know who i want to serve. you know it's like a student i don't know who i want to I, I can help anyone i don't know who i want to help and then i say okay here we go i'm a, you know this is going to be a three-week long lesson that the person has to learn on their own um okay pick opportunistically and they say okay yeah this this would be good all right they've got a lot of money um whatever and I say, okay, go go find them, go research the market, go find out what their expensive problems are, go uh, you know figure out what their buying power is, the price sensitivity is, so on and so forth. And then we'll come up with some uh, products that we can put together, either products, productized services, or services to help these people uh, get whatever it is that they want. And three weeks later, they're like, eh, "This isn't working. I don't. It's just boring. And there's not. I, I'm feeling like no motivation." And then I go, okay, well, let's pick someone that you actually care about. And it's like, yeah, while I was doing this, I realized that I really want to help, you know, insert whatever yoga studios or my church group or something that they actually care about. But then the, then they always go, but they don't have any money. <laughs> yeah. And I say, well, why don't you just go talk to them about what their issues are and same, do the same thing that you tried to do with the previous people, but with these people who, A, trust you, B, you have total access to they'll tell you anything and you and you know 10 of them and they'll be they'll be super forthcoming about what their problems are and then what do you know light bulb moment guess what happened in the conversation you know there's a lot of excitement and all of a sudden things start to work if you just pick someone opportunistically it makes marketing just torture and you can't not market it's a core function of business. That's why like big companies all have a CMO. It's a core feature. And so if, if marketing's torture or you really have to force yourself to do it, you don't find it fun at all, it's, it could be because you don't really care about who you're trying to serve and you're just thinking about like, oh, I, I, I want to make a lot of money. I'm not saying Katie's saying this, but you mm -hmm. know, I just, oh, I just want to like make a lot of money. So I'm going to go into a, an area that has lots of money and it's, all right. You know, maybe, maybe you can force yourself to market to those people, but I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. And a after a while, maybe you can at the beginning when you're really hungry, but when you're not hungry anymore, it's like they take a little piece of your soul every day, even if they're not bad people. I'm just right. saying it, it just, you, there's this disconnect between who you are and what you're doing that becomes a problem. Now you might fall in love with that niche and then you're fine, but it's a lot easier to start with something you already really care about. Yeah. I mean, think, think what, say you, say you pick, say someone picks a, a completely opportunist, opportunistic target market because they're rich and one of two things can happen. You can fail and just like not connect <laughs> with the people, which I think is usually what would happen, or you could succeed and be totally unfulfilled and end up wanting to switch to someone you care about anyway. <laughs> you just have more money. Mm -hmm. So it just, to me, you know, personal bias is showing here. I think it's important if you're in the service business to serve people you like uh, and want to help. But, you know, I see people getting away with this other approach, but I just can't do it. And I, I work with a lot of people who can't make themselves do it either. So I don't think it's just me. Well, a lot of times that's why we got in our own businesses, right? Is because we were serving someone, it might have been a boss, might have been clients that did, we didn't mesh with. Or worse, we had, you know, a fundamental misalignment in terms of goals and values. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to drag yourself to, to work every day if you don't like the people you're working with. 
yeah, I mean, if you're going to be your own boss, you know, like, why not make it a great, great job? <laughs> well, yeah. So, cool. Okay, great. Thanks, Katie. Hopefully that helped. Yeah, thanks. All right. The next question is from Mark McDougall. I've heard you guys talk often about getting the answers to the questions you have in your business directly from the customers that you serve, either through customer interviews or surveys. And I'm wondering if you have any specific tactics or strategies to get customers on the phone and ask them questions that would help you understand the business landscape a little bit more, or perhaps get some insight into what problems they're experiencing so you can better position yourself and market yourself to other similar people. Thanks. It's like Mark just heard what we were talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can jump in on, on that one. Yeah. So really, the question is, how can you get more of these kinds of people on the phone? And it sounds like Mark is looking for um, that sort of magic bullet that gets them to agree to talk to him. Um, so a couple of ideas on that. And the first one is get really clear about what it is you want to know so that whenever you talk to anybody that's remotely related to this, you have in your head the the three or the five questions that you want to ask. Um, the other is I'd use my network. And LinkedIn is great for this because you can see who's connected to who. So go and find those people and ask your friends, you know, capital F or small F friends to introduce you to them so that you come with kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval. And I would um, be absolutely 100% clear that this is to gather information generally. It is not a sales call and don't make it into one. It is a research call. So um, that is one. The other thing which might not work for Mark, um, but if you've been doing this for a while and you have a little bit of a budget, is you can hire somebody to do that for you. If And again, I'm assuming you want the qualitative information that comes from a phone call versus the quantitative info that comes from a survey. Right. And so sometimes, for example, you want to know, um, you know, what potential clients might be thinking, you might also want to know what current clients are thinking. And so you can hire somebody to actually interview them. And that person, if they're good, is going to hear things that you won't get, right? Because they know you already. So it depends on the kind of information you're looking for, but use your network and never, ever try to sell on those calls. Your sale is your consultative skill in handling the meeting that's your sale yes a hundred percent so i've got a i agree with that thoroughly and i've got a couple of things to add so one is that uh, i have a white paper on my website that is free to download if you go to jonathanstark.com free it's called the introduction game and it's not one of these sleazy network things it's a way that you can it's it's specific steps you can take to do what rochelle just recommended it, almost exactly what you just recommended, where it's like, use your network so you show up with a good housekeeping seal of approval. They trust you already. Do not sell. If they ask to take, if they say, take my money, say, no, this is a research call. I haven't even built this thing yet. I'll call you in three months and see how you're feeling then. But it has like a, a step-by-step kind of procedure, a game that you can play with other people that will kind of walk you through this process with more specificity. Um, another thing is that Mark specifically said phone calls, but I think having conversations in general, it doesn't have to be a phone call. So it could be, I mean, phone calls great, but it could be in person. It could be, uh, it could be uh, a text chat. It could be email questions, but I think real time is probably the way to go. But it, you know, but you can still do that in like a Slack type of format. I've done it plenty of times. And then you've got a record of exactly what they said, which is super helpful. Um, another thing you can do, which will get a similar result, is what Amy Hoy calls a sales safari, where you go to watering holes, air quotes, watering holes, and observe the conversations that people are having. So instead of having the conversation yourself, you can see what they're saying if the people you want to serve do chat about those sorts of things online. So, you know, people like freelancers and web designers, and, and it's very easy to find forms for certain kinds of people where they're, uh, you know, sharing their hopes, dreams, worries, and fears, pu essentially publicly, you know, maybe it's Facebook group or Reddit or whatever, it doesn't matter. 
you know, certain people are very active online. Other people are not so much, you know, think financial advisors and MDs and those sorts of things probably aren't as active online with the, that kind of transparency. Oh, but, you'd be surprised in the financial advisory community. There's oh, a really? gazillion forums. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, so there you have it. Like, so you can, I kind of lump all of this into optimizing for conversations. So you want to optimize for conversations. So like Rochelle, Rochelle <laughs> I'm talking to, can you tell I'm talking too fast and too much? My tongue cramped. Uh, like Rochelle said, the having specific questions that you want to get answered is I think really key, like short, not, not, you want to be kind of open-ended, but not massive, you know, so it's, there's like a, a tightrope. There's a tension between like getting a good open-ended question um, and, and, but, but not like putting so much work on the person who's trying to help you. Like, don't make them do all the work. Yes. Yeah. And so the way I think of that is when somebody says something and they, and they pause and you can tell they might want to go deeper is you ask a follow-up question and get them to go deeper. And sometimes, you know, if you have five questions, you throw away the last two because you went someplace on the third question that was pure gold. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that's the other piece is you don't want to just restrict yourself to this list of questions. I mean, obviously, that's what you want to start with. But if they take you in an interesting direction, your job is to go. <laughs> yes. Right. That you don't want to lead the witness too much, you know, so that that's a great point. So I see sometimes people are, they have a, an offering that they want to sell. They're thinking about selling like, oh, I'd really like to start doing advisory retainers. I'm going to go interview people and figure out how I can use their language to sell advisory retainers to them. So you, you have to be way more open than that. You have to follow the conversation because whatever product or service you're thinking about creating they might not, and they probably don't care. Like you, if you if you don't have a lot of empathy or understanding with the target market yet, you're probably making the wrong, uh, dreaming up the wrong things. But that's fine. It's just a starting point. Talk to them, and you're hoping that they're going to say all the things that uh, that would lead them to want something like you're trying to create. But don't don't try and like nudge them in that direction. Just follow the conversation. Yes. Yeah. Because they'll feel it. If you try to push them in a certain direction and all of a sudden it's a sales call, Mm -hmm. it's not a getting information call you're selling. Yeah. And so for folks who aren't great at having these sorts of conversations, which are, you know, mostly you just ask a question and shut up, uh, you know, and then ask a follow-up question when they slow down. Uh, There's a Ted talk. I think it's by Celeste Headley, but we'll link to it in the show notes where she she says like how to it's something like how to do a good interview or how to listen anyway we'll put it in the show notes and it's like 10 steps to having an amazing conversation but it's it's this kind of a conversation because she's a like an interview uh, a host for npr some like interview show and she just knocks it out of the park on every one of these like 10 points she brings up so if you if you feel like you're really bad at having these kinds of conversations with people uh, check that out and then just add one more uh, thing which is you have to stop talking and just listen (laughs) and let the let the silence hang it was one of the best lessons I ever learned from one of my first consulting mentors is when the person stops talking you let the silence sit for a little bit and boy a three second silence can feel really long when you're in person and on the phone a five or ten second silence feels like they died mm-hmm. you know but giving people some of that space they will tell you more than they'd originally intended if you just give them the opportunity totally do not jump into that gap do not that's that's where the good stuff comes it's like don't mm-hmm. it's in negotiate it's true I saw my stepfather had a, a used bookstore and I learned this firsthand when, he, you know, he would, you know, go to somebody's house and they'd say, hey, you know, get this 4,000 books and, and how much, you know, how much you give us for it or whatever. And it's just, I just watched like an actual good negotiator in person, just in real time, just not talk. <laughs> <laughs> And he would, and he, it wasn't that he was, it wasn't that he uh, was trying to do anything. He was just a, a, a slow paced person. And so mm-hmm. he'd be thinking about his response. And then I would just watch the other person 
jump in like they can't take it you know and they jump in and be like well if, if eight thousand is too much then i could do it for, for four thousand all right oh okay i thought fine you drive a hard bargain <laughs> he hasn't said a word he's like he's he's waiting to get a word in edgewise but he was just like a little he's like two notches slower than everybody else he's like a, a thoughtful person and it was just they would crumble it was it wasn't even doing it on purpose I've seen yeah. him pay, pay more money than the, he's like, I can't, I got to give you more than that. I mean, this is, this is a good, good, good <laughs> bunch of books, but yeah, great point. Great point. Do not jump into the, it feels like a yawning gap that's going to swallow you up, but just sit with it, get good at sitting with that. And I think you'll have good results. And it's a fun exercise to get used to it. I mean, you, you know, the first few times your skin tingles and you feel itchy and your, you know, your foot's going up and down. But it's really fun when you can do it in person because then you have to control your body movements <laughs> as well. And you just get, you, there's a zone. I, I call it the zone, but there's a zone I get in when I'm like that because it's I'm so attuned to the other person. The silence doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. I'm, w- I'm with it. I'm with the silence because it's important to that person, the silence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's it's a fun thing. Give it a try. Exactly. All right. I think we've got time for one more question. Yes. One more, one more. Yeah. So uh, here we go. This is from Michelle Guerra. Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm an efficiency strategist, and I love listening to the Business of Authority podcast. Uh, so thank you for taking my question. Uh, I, I have previously listened to a podcast episode with the two Bobs, which is Blair Enns and David C. Baker, um, who I know you guys are, are familiar with. Um, they were discussing a topic of vertical and horizontal positioning of a business. Um, I know you guys talk at length on how each of us solopreneurs should position ourselves to a specific clientele. Uh, and I totally agree. Um, However, my pigeonhole business is aligned with another type or a type of a service-based business, uh, excluding retail and franchises, making my positioning more horizontal instead of vertical. Um, I I am finding it a little difficult um, finding my next projects uh, because I get my clientele based on referrals. So I do my networking with business coaches, HR consultants, and accountant bookkeepers to get that warm introduction to their clients, which is not the same marketing tactics that you you guys talk about, Um, or at least I haven't heard you guys talk about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on vertical versus horizontal positioning and what, what sort of marketing you would do for either one of them. Thanks. Oh, Michelle. Juicy. <laughs> Very juicy. <laughs> Very juicy. Oh, um, there's a part of me that wants to kind of jump in on this because what she's describing is what a lot of, and when I say newer consultants, I don't necessarily mean um, new to their specialty, but newer to consulting. Like you leave corporate and you start to do this. And and so you work by referral. You go to the people that you know, and they help you. One of the things nobody ever talks about with referrals of that sort is that you you can tend to become whatever that referral needs you to be. Right. So, so you work with client X, who's this particular kind of organization and they go, Oh, Michelle would be great at this. And they introduce you to another kind of organization that really isn't a hundred percent in your sweet spot, but it sort of is. And because you're relying on referral marketing, you keep saying yes. I'm not saying you're doing this, Michelle. I'm just saying that some people do this where you keep saying yes to this next thing. And you're never really developing that core that will allow you to expand in other directions. It's almost like you're letting the market tell you what they need from you in any given moment. And that's one of the reasons why it gets really hard to keep busy 100%. Yeah, and it's hard to when when a colleague has referred you to someone else, it makes it even harder to say no to the Mm -hmm. ultimate client because you feel like you're kind of throwing your friend under the bus. So there's extra pressure to be a chameleon and just like take the gig. So, I mean, referrals are great. You just want to make sure that you're getting 
referred for the right thing. Um, but you know, there are other things, but it shouldn't be, yeah, shouldn't, I hate saying shouldn't. It, it's only one way to attract business. So, you know, it'd probably be great if you had other ways as well, but that's not the question. The question is more about the positioning. Um, and I've actually modified my language on this in the past year or so. So you might've heard me say something a little blurrier about this in the past, but I see horizontal positioning. I see that as a focus on your specialization, which I would define to be kind of like your skills, like what skill you bring to the table or skills that you bring to the table. So it's a horizontal position is like, uh, I um, synonymous might be strong, but I feel like it's very close to a specialization, and that's about you and your skills. A a vertical is more about them. It's like a, or a niche or uh, a target market. Uh, that's more about the client and what they're what they want. You know, so whether they want mm-hmm. some expensive problem solved or they want some, you know, they see some big opportunity and they want to capture it before the window closes. So I see it as, as you've got specialization on one axis, the horizontal axis, and you've got a niche in the vertical axis. And so your, your specialization, you probably, I can't, I couldn't quite tell from the question, but it seems like she knows what that is for her. Like she's got a specialization. There's some superpower she has that she's good at. And the vertical is like, okay, who do you want to help? And that could be the vertical axis, I should say, or the niche is who do you want to help? And that could be defined, that's going to be defined based on some characteristic of the audience. So maybe they're in a vertical, maybe it's a vertical niche, a, a strictly vertical niche, by which I mean the type of industry they're in. So this would be like plastics manufacturing or dentist or franchisee or something like that. So well, because she, she said service, um, but not franchise or retail. Yeah, so she, she may have a specialty in there, but just didn't want to say it. Right, or a niche. Yes, so, uh, yes, 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 niche, right. niche. So whatever that, whatever that might be, however that's defined, you've got, let's, let's say it's financial advisors. Just, I don't know what it is. Let's just say, let's say her niche is financial advisors. That's a vertical. She's used a vertical segmentation to define that niche. Could also be environmentalists, which would be a psychographic, or it could be uh, 18 to 25 year old males, which would be a demographic. But let's just say it's a vertical niche. And it, let's just say it's financial advisors. Now, I, I picture it like an Etch-a-Sketch, okay? that Hopefully that doesn't date me too much, but an Etch-a-Sketch has like these two dials on it. And when you turn one, it makes the, the pencil thing go up and down. And when you turn the other one, it makes it go left to right. And you can move the pencil, you can move the line all across the screen using these two things, these two dials. And to me, the specialization, you've got two dials in your positioning You've got your specialization dial, which is going to go back and forth horizontally from less focused to more focused and, you know, less specialized to more specialized. And then you've got this other dial, which is your niche, the audience you want to serve, your target market, your ideal buyers. And that's, you can focus that up and down more blurry or less blurry, more focused or less focused. So you can turn the dials all the way in one direction. So you do something hyper-specialized for a hyper-focused target market, a hyper-focused niche. So that would be something like, um, I optimize my SQL databases for financial advisors. Like, pooh, that might be, that's <laughs> a little too, you, you're hyper-focused on both axes, which can make it really hard to find someone who actually needs that. It, even if you did find someone that needs that, it would, it's almost like so focused that it would be not credible. Like, really? So I would say in general, you want to get the kind of like the more focus you get with one, the less focused you want to get with the other one in general. So if you get super focused on a niche, like, you know, I don't know, uh, financial advisors with, you know, that are managing X dollars or something like so even, even like a subset, let's go to doctors. Cause that's easier. Let's say plastic surgeons. So it's like, not just doctors. It's not just like people are in their own practice. It's plastic surgeons in the U S okay. Plastic surgeons. If you have a hyper-focused specialization, that might make things harder than if you are less specialized in your skill set. So in other words, you can be more of a generalist skill-wise and bring more, more of your skills to the equation. 
and solve uh, a, you know, a particular kind of problem or a couple of problems for plastic surgeons. So I feel like there's a, there's um, it's like a double focusing thing. It's like, it's like you're focusing these two different things and you can kind of, you can tell when you hit the sweet spot because uh, things come into focus, like language comes into focus. You start to know exactly what to say. You, you've all of a sudden you're getting even more referrals or you're finding people who are like, see your LinkedIn profile and like, we have to talk. Here's my phone number. Call me right now. So you can tell when, when you nailed it because you get start to get traction. I lump all that stuff in under the word traction because it's, your marketing is working. Your positioning is working. That's how I see it. That's like my visual on it. But what do you, I mean, is that? Well, well, there's also the question of, I agree with all of that. Um, but I think part of her question was, so how do you market in those situations. And so when you've got, I, I like the plastic surgeon analogy. Now, uh, Michelle says she's an efficiency strategist. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but let's say that she goes into plastic surgery or surgeons offices and, you know, fixes the, the filing system, figures out how to do hiring systems for people, whatever that is. Okay. All of a sudden, instead of having to hit up every HR consultant and every coach to try and get her next assignment, she's got a, a specified pool of people to attract. So then you start to ask those questions. Where do plastic surgeons in the U.S. go to get their information? What do they read? What do they listen to? What are they interested in? How do you get to them? What gatekeepers are there? So you start by answering all those questions. You can design marketing that's very targeted and very specific. And it also allows you to do content marketing, right? When you think about um, the beauty of having things be more efficient. You know, what are the outcomes of having things more efficient? What are the feelings that your clients get? What's that transformation that allows you to do all of that? But if you're doing a horizontal specialty, that's harder, right? Now, the good news is that you've got these referrals who are really happy with you and they're talking about the outcome, but it gets diluted. Right. Because there are other people, presumably, who can do what you do in those marketplaces. It isn't um, unique enough in the minds of the people that you're talking to. But what if you could do both? Right. So what if you've got um, you're, you're serving plastic surgeons, you've got a, a key message and you can both do your networking kinds of activities, plus what I think of as classic marketing, uh, which for consulting services is really content marketing. Mm hmm. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yep. So if you, so let's, yeah. Let, so let me go a little back to my Etch-a-Sketch for a second because I agree with that. One one thing I'll add is if you dial the niche to the most focused and you pick something really focused like plastic surgeons, they might not know they need a, a uh, efficiency strategist. You know, they might not know that they're inefficient, but they do know that they have other symptoms that come from inefficiency. So you started to go there, Rochelle. So yeah, what you heck yeah headlines is exactly. that where you're going, Jonathan? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so if you know who you're talking to, you can you can have a research call with them, or you just know them, or you you find a forum online where they're complaining about all of these symptoms, like oh I'm working like ten hour days, and oh my staff is just burnt out, and where everybody's cranky because we're working so much. Like okay, that might be a symptom of an efficiency problem. So in your marketing, if you're going to if you're going to dial way into the niche and, and be a little bit uh, blurrier about your specialization than your skills, then it's all about, you know, heck yeah, headlines in the previous episode about talking about the symptoms like, hey, uh, you know, are you working 10 hour days? Are you, is your staff burnt out? Uh, are you barely making ends meet? So on and so forth. And, and they're like, yes, yes, yes. Heck yeah. You're like, okay, well, I, there are some ways that we can engage where I could solve those problems. So you could, you know, maybe only work six hour days and your staff wouldn't be burnt out and, you know, all of these things you want. It's like, oh, tell me more. And then mm -hmm. you can start talking about, oh, well, I've got these efficiency related products and services that can create leverage in your business. So you're not working, you know, the hard way you can work smart instead of hard. It's like, oh, okay, like, let's talk about that. So that would be if you were going to really dial in on 
in uh, what she called the vertical specialization, but I would call like a niche market and like really help them with a particular kind of problem. But you just talk about the problems. You don't talk about your offering until they're curious. Yes. The other approach would be to go pure horizontal. So like the just the opposite end of the spectrum where you are an efficiency consultant or strategist for anybody. Okay, how do you how do you market yourself that way? That is, like Rochelle said, that's a lot harder. It's a longer game. But the way that you do it is you become famous for it. So what does that look like? That looks like speaking engagements. That looks like PR. That looks like, you know, a lot of content marketing. That looks like writing books about it. And, and it's, it's the kind of The home edit. Take a look at the home edit on Instagram for your model for this. <laughs> Erica just bought that. It's sitting on our coffee table. Um, yes. But yeah, you just become famous for it, right? Yeah, Marie Kondo, she's famous for it. She became famous. But like that, that, and look, do that. If you want to do that, do that. That's what happened to me by accident with the iPhone stuff in 2010. I became famous for this thing. And it was great. I was attracting clients from all over the place. But, you know, when I look back on it, it, there were kind of like three different categories of clients I attracted. And I could have gone, I could have stayed in there if I pivoted over to a vertical specialization, perhaps. But I guess that's neither here nor there. But the idea is the approach is very different. If you dial all the way over to a horizontal specialization where you're all about uh, efficiency, that's great. You know, you can do that. People do it. Uh, but you need to become extremely well known uh, mm-hmm. in general, and you're gonna you're just gonna be talking about your your area of expertise. You're but probably not talking so much, or at least you won't be able to talk as specifically about the kinds of problems they're experiencing from a lack of efficiency. Where you have you, to get people really excited about your topic. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and you've got to use all kinds of different techniques to get them excited in yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, it's a different way of marketing. Right. Yeah, it's it's it. You're just talking about the thing that you do all the time, versus talking really specifically about prop, you know, symptoms, problems that people are experiencing. And uh, it, it, I, I just, I think that it's easier and safer. Again, personal bias. It's easier and safer to pick a niche that you have access to and that you want to help. And then you can be more, most people want to be more broad in their skills. That's my experience. Most people don't want to specialize in a particular skill because they feel like they're going to get bored or they like being on the learning curve with their tools and they like to play with new things, new techniques and all that stuff. So you can indulge that more if you pick a niche and solve an expensive problem for them and you can use all different sorts of tools to solve that problem. Uh, yeah. So it, to me, it's just easier, safer. It's a shorter road. You get more feedback. You can tell that you need to pivot earlier where the the longer road, it feels like there's more luck. The horizontal specialization feels like there's more luck involved. Um, and it's a, and it's a little bit more trying to boil the ocean thing where you don't get any results until you get tons of results. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking from, you know, my big firm experience, we had a lot of those kinds of folks where they had a, 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 a very deep specialization that fits the horizontal definition for purposes of this conversation. And one of the challenges for those folks is that there is not enough room for them, right? You, you, there's only so many um, super duper experts you can have on a really, you know, fairly narrow area. So it does limit you and you have to be able to, you know, really be a thought leader in that to get your, your message out. So I think part of this too is kind of how you're wired, Right. I think some people are just really wired to do it that way, to do that horizontal. It's that's just their thing. And to Jonathan's point, you can absolutely make that happen. It is easier. Um, we maybe we're both biased, but it is easier to identify your audience because it gives you a way to talk to them, a way to communicate, a way to show how you can solve uh, problems, especially expensive problems. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, hopefully that helped. Yeah. Thank Great. you, Michelle. Yeah. Thanks. For, well, thanks everyone. Uh, Andrea, Katie, Mark, Michelle, thanks so much for sending those in. Dear listener, if you would like to send in a question, you can go to the show notes for this and shoot me an email with an MP3 or whatever voice recording you've got, uh, because we want to keep doing this. We want to keep doing like a 
mailbag listener listener question <laughs> section of the show. Uh, I, that was fun for me. Did you like that? I did. I did. And especially, I really like hearing your voices because when we do this, it's Jonathan and I in our own little echo chamber. So I, I like hearing some other voices besides ours. It's fun. She's bored of me. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, Jonathan, you're never boring. <laughs> never, ever, ever. All right. That would be the worst. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that's it for episode 150 of the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Yay. Stark. And I'm Michelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again for number 151. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.